This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, one quarter of all cervical cancer incidents in the world come from the Western Pacific region. But a new screening and treatment program in PNG's Highlands hopes to reverse that statistic. Making them to think that there won't be any cervical cancer in the in the future. And with the burden of climate change weighing most heavily on small Pacific economies, who really should foot the bill when countries look to adapt to changing weather patterns? Climate finance, as it was operating at the time, had the potential to widen various forms of inequality. And a new video game inspired by New Caledonia's Kanaka culture is taking the world by storm. We'll be speaking to the creators of that game, Chia, coming up on the show. All that and more today. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, we start in Papua New Guinea, where tributes are flowing after the death of the country's fourth prime minister, Sir Rabi Namaliu, prime minister from 1988 to 1992 and a key member of the Pangu Party, passed away over the weekend after a sudden illness. Joining us now to chat more about the story is Papua New Guinean journalist Scott Wyde. Uh, good morning to you, Scott. Good morning. Um, so, Scott, what will uh, Papua New Guineans remember about Sir Rabi Namaliu? Well, Sir Rabi Namaliu was the typical Melanesian leader. He was always, you know, he drew on his uh, cultural roots, was always consultative. Uh, and and in, in a, at a time when there was so much instability, and this was after, the, uh, during the Bougainville crisis, uh, he survived uh, four years in government as prime minister at a time when it was uh, very unstable uh, and survived many votes of no confidence. So he was, uh, I guess, that prime minister that embodied uh, a typical Melanesian leader. And he was, you know, very well respected across the Pacific as well and uh, in ACP countries. Mm. Yeah, because Scott, he's considered um, part of this gang of four, isn't it? Um, Can you explain a bit about who the gang of four are and and why they're so important to to PNG's history? Yeah, the gang of four were the first uh, intakes of uh, the University of Papua New Guinea, and there was Sir Robin Namaliu. Among them was Sir Robin Namaliu, Sir Makera Morauta, Tony Siaguru. Uh, and and they were the ones that uh, took over from uh, the the Australian colonial government and and de- basically decolonized the uh, the public service and worked towards that over the over the next few decades. Um, Sir Robbie never really left public life. He he was always within public life, uh, either as uh, a member of a board of a company or uh, in politics or in public service. So he, he was always an ever-present um, force, uh, so to speak, in, in various sectors. Mm. And, and as you mentioned, Sir Rabi is, I guess, part of um, yeah, Papua New Guinea's independence and, and that that time just post-independence where, where Papua New Guinea is really building itself as, as an independent, strong nation. Um, 
is he considered in the same class as leaders as, as the founder of, of independent Papua New Guinea, Sir Michael Samari? Is, is that the sort of um, league that he stands in? Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a generation after that, but mm. w- within that same, you know, younger than Sir Michael and, and his mob, but, uh, you know, very, very, very much respected. And, and uh, I guess now with his, with his passing, you, you can easily class him as, as one of the founders of Papua New Guinea. Um, and and he was, you know, he came to power in a very difficult time, uh, you know, earlier in his career when he was, you know, after prime minister, his prime ministership, he was, you know, always this thing hanging on on his shoulder that he was the prime minister that authorized troops into Bougainville, mm. and uh, you know, the the person that uh, kind of started the Bougainville crisis with the introduction of troops into Bougainville. Uh, and, and that has been acknowledged by the president of the ABG, uh, Ismail Toroama, who was uh, back then a, a, a rebel leader. Um, and Ismail Toroama just released a statement uh, uh, a few days ago saying, you know, despite the fact that he is the prime minister that authorized troops into Bougainville, he's been very remorseful. Uh, he's come and apologized to Bougainvillians and we accept that apology. And he, he's, 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 uh, he's forgiven. Oh, that's very interesting, Scott, because I wanted to ask you, um, considering that um, his his leadership during the Bougainville crisis, if, if there are some, some if he does have a bit of a controversial legacy there in Papua New Guinea, but it sounds like he, he's made up for, for it. Is that right, Scott? Yes, as I said, it, it was uh, it was a dark time for the country and he was the prime minister that, you know, people, many people within politics would silently, you know, quietly accuse him of, being the person responsible for it, uh, Sir Julius was perhaps the most visible. He tried to end it and he, he tried to bring in um, mercenaries. But mm. uh, Sir Rabi has always been this person in the back. Uh, but that's uh, that discussion uh, ha- has come about um, and this statement from uh, President Toroma has, has just put that to rest. Mm. Um, he, I understand Sir Rabi also was um, often quoted from the media after he you know, left office where he spoke out against public corruption. Was he a vocal voice when it came to pro- pro- corruption in um, politics there in Papua New Guinea? Were his words listened to at all? He's... Uh Yes, he, he he was a political force. You know, let, let me put it this way: he was a political force, and he he would have been, you know, that person where he understood a lot about the inner workings of parliament and and the corruption that that happened within public service uh, service and within politics, and he, he governed when the country was going through uh, uh, a lot of internal turmoil. So yes. Mm. And just finally, Scott, I, I wanted to know what's um, planned now for Sir Rabi. He he just recently passed away over the weekend. Um, is there is there going to be a state funeral? Are we likely to see um, a big sort of um, national gathering and, and mourning period, as we saw with other great legal leaders like Sir Michael Samari um, with his passing as well? 
Um, that's something the government is yet to announce. The Prime Minister has released a statement, uh, but the, the details of that hasn't been uh, clearly outlined yet. So we, probably today or tomorrow we'd, we, we'd have a clear idea of what's going to happen. Mm, very interesting. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you. That was Scott Wide, a PNG journalist, just speaking there about the passing of the uh, of Papua New Guinea's fourth prime minister, that's Sir Rabi Namaliu. He um, passed away over the weekend after a sudden illness. And let's stay in PNG now for an uplifting health story. Cervical cancer might be easy to detect and treat if found early, but the disease continues to devastate countless lives across the country. But now, women in Western Highlands province can get screened and treated on the same day at a new clinic, the first of its kind in Papua New Guinea. Women have already been turning up in droves for the service, and those behind it are aiming to eliminate cervical cancer in the province by the end of the decade. Liam Fox with this report. It's hard to exaggerate the impact cervical cancer is having on the lives of women in PNG. If you're in a room and you ask, have any of you had a member of your family dying from cervical cancer, almost everyone will put, a, put their hands up. Dr Paulus Ripper is the head of clinical services at the Western Highlands Provincial Health Authority. At the moment, cervical cancer is one of the highest killers of women who are relatively young and in their productive age groups. And the deaths, you know, devastate families. It's a situation repeated across the region, according to Professor Claire Wakefield, director of the Mindaroo Foundation's Collaborate Against Cancer program. It's one of the cancers where you see the global inequities coming out absolutely most strongly. And really, unfortunately, the Western Pacific region actually bears one quarter of the global cervical cancer burden. And that's really not acceptable in today's day and age. Not acceptable because the human papillomavirus, HPV, that causes almost all cervical cancers is easily detectable and treatable if found early enough. But Professor Wakefield says the grim story in PNG and the rest of the Pacific is about to change thanks to an initiative between the Western Highlands Provincial Health Authority, several cancer research centres and the philanthropic Mindaroo Foundation. This is an incredible landmark collaboration to deliver access to life-saving health interventions for the women of Papua New Guinea who really haven't had the access to care that they should have. $8 million in funding from Mindaroo has enabled what was a small-scale research project to be turned into a permanent clinic at the hospital in the provincial capital, Mount Hagen. Women can now get screened for HPV and, if needed, get treatment to eliminate it all in a single day. Dr Paulus Ripper says it's a game changer. The old method of doing pap smears and stuff required specimens to be taken and sent to pathology labs where they would be analysed and then the results would come back. But women are lost to follow up. They don't come back. And so this is revolutionary in that they come in the morning, they give their specimen. Uh, after two hours, they know the results and if they are positive about 15% of them are going to be positive and they get treated on the spot. Gloria Munul is the nurse in charge of the HPV clinic and says there's been a huge response from women, not just in Western Highlands, but neighbouring provinces as well. They were so excited. Some even shed the tears. 
they said if this HPV program, if it was not here, then we would just be like our poor relatives who left us long ago. But now that it's here, we know that we'll, we'll be okay. Dr Ripper says the funding injection has also enabled them to turn a truck into a mobile clinic to go out into rural areas where most women live and screen and treat them in their communities. They've done a few trips so far and more are planned for the future. We turned up and we can do about 30 or 40 women a day. Over 500 women came and when we met them, they were saying, you know, we have a lot of difficulties getting into town, getting to, to, to the clinics. And the fact that you are coming here to our doorstep makes a lot of difference. And some of them were crying with joy. Already, more than 2,500 women in Western Highlands have been screened for HPV and 400 have received same-day treatment or been referred to specialist care. The next stage, starting early next year, is to immunise girls aged between 9 and 14 against HPV, with a target of 30,000 girls by 2025. Nurse Gloria Munul is confident there'll be a big response to the vaccination program as well. They're so excited and they're so happy. They are saying that this HPV program, we thought it was only for us women, but it, but the vaccine is something that is making them to think that there won't be any cervical cancer in the, in the future. The aim is to eliminate cervical cancer altogether in the province by 2030, and Dr Paulus Ripper believes it is achievable. People tell us we are too ambitious, but our motto is by 2030 we want to eliminate it in Western Islands. We don't want to do things by half. And Western Highlands is just the start. The full name of the initiative is Eliminating Cervical Cancer in the Western Pacific, and a similar program is underway in Vanuatu. Professor Claire Wakefield from Mindaroo says the hope is to expand it to other parts of BNG and the region. We really would love to see this as the, really, the beginning of the elimination of cervical cancer in the Western Pacific. And actually, we're working on an elimination pathway for all of the women across the region based on this incredibly exciting um, launch project. That was Professor Claire Wakefield from Mindaroo Foundation ending Liam Fox's report. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. It's wishing you, that is my name, Priyanka Srinivasan, I can say it, um, and wishing you a very lovely start to the week. Adapting to climate change costs money, a lot of money. Just think about it. Things like building robust seawalls, relocating major infrastructure or even communities or transitioning to renewable energy. These initiatives are all expensive, which begs the question, where should that money come from? Particularly in the Pacific, where the problems are huge, but government budgets are small. Well, Kirsty Anandhanraja is a researcher at the Australian National University looking into this very topic. Speaking with Marion Farr, she says while climate finance is a buzzword, there isn't much agreement about what it means and how it should work. Is it? private finance? Is it public finance? Is it a mixture of both? Can things like debt finance to, you know, Pacific countries be counted as climate finance? What is, you know, the rationale behind climate finance? Is it based on this idea of climate justice? You know, what sort of projects is it meant to be funding? Mm. And so talk us 
through your research a little bit and what you ended up finding um, when you looked into this kind of area in Fiji? Yeah, so my research was um, particularly looking at climate finance for uh, renewable energy development in Fiji. Climate finance was everywhere in kind of a discursive sense. And what I mean by that is everyone was talking about it. Everyone knew what it was from, you know, members of the community to government to the international, you know, development organisations. Everyone was talking about climate finance. But at the same time, climate finance was kind of nowhere. What what did you find when you did sort of look into the impacts that it was having on people, like real people on the ground? Well, I think my research soon became quite concerned with the issue of justice. Um, And we actually found that climate finance, as it was operating at the time, had the potential to widen various forms of inequality, like the difference between urban centres and rural areas was stark in terms of financing. And that was partly linked to another inequality, which was about scale. So climate finance is preferring to flow into large scale projects for various reasons. You know, when you're talking about electrification and particularly when you're talking about island geographies, small scale solutions become really, really crucial. I think there are better ways of doing it. I think that part of it involves more local and contextualised governance and regulation. So we're not just imposing these governance and regulatory best practices from the global north. For example, I'll give you a specific example of that. Um, To get to access the GCF, there were these very, very, very intense accreditation processes that Pacific countries um, and institutions and organisations had to go in to access them. But just that in itself completely diverted Pacific resources from, you know, there are other public functions. And it was just very not adapted to realities in Pacific bureaucracies. And I think that that was particularly problematic. Mm. And do you think that's something that needs to be applied when we're looking at things like um, the loss and damage fund that um, was agreed to um, in principle at the last uh, COP27 summit? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this question around climate change in general really surrounds various facets of justice. There's a lot of excitement and hype on this idea of private finance and it mobilising huge, huge, huge sums of money. But I think we need to re-engage with the role of, you know, grant-based finance and the role of public finance um, in this way. This is my opinion, but I don't think the climate catastrophe should primarily be phrased as an opportunity for profit making. I think that that is not going to lead us to very good solutions. (laughs) And why is that? Why do you think that? Because I think that we have to see that something is owed to these, you know, people and these communities and that this is about need and not necessarily opportunity. And I can kind of give you a bit of an on the ground example of that. When I was doing my research, I visited a, um, a small community energy system. This is in um, a small community in Fiji. And the majority of um, this community, their primary economic activity was um, diving for lobsters. But because of their lack of freezers, they were unable to kind of freeze their lobsters and sell them directly to market. They kind of had to sell them to like these middlemen at the port. 
So there was a level of economic exploitation there. And they were given a system that was basically undersized for their needs and they weren't able to use a freezer. And the reason that this system was undersized was because of financial limits, if that makes sense. It was based on centering the financial as opposed to the broader economic value, if that makes sense. And I think that that is a problem of climate finance. It's that we're we're putting the financial imperatives right at the centre and all of our decisions and all of the things that stem from that, you know, like are stemming from that. I, I, I don't think that that's the problem. Pacific countries are at the cold face of climate change. And renewable energy in Pacific countries is a good thing because it will de-link Pacific communities from, you know, international oil market fluctuations. Um, You know, that will increase resilience and it will, of course, reduce emissions. But I think we have to kind of look at, at broad issues as well of, you know, empowerment, the technological needs, the visions and the hopes of communities that they have for their own futures. And I I don't think that that can be constrained in a purely financial logic, if that makes sense. Climate finance has a lot of potential. We have to go through the work of, I guess, reweaving it in a way that is just and that works for the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the communities that it's meant to arrive in. That was ANU researcher Kirsty Anandaraja speaking there with Marion Farr. Nijam Forty, hosted by me, Sam Wax, and me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next gen Nijam Forty stars. Nijam Forty. Nation Footy. Monday evenings at 6 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Hold the front page! Now it's time to find out what's been making news around the Pacific region. And to do that, we're joined, as always, by producer reporter extraordinaire, Carl Evans. Good morning, Carl. Extraordinaire. Happy Monday, Priyanka. (laughs) Happy Monday. Um, Now to a story from Papua New Guinea. Uh, We understand an earthquake struck uh, its north, the north of the country, last night. Can you tell us more about this earthquake? Yeah, so touch wood, it looks to have been a a bit of a near miss at this stage. It was a powerful earthquake and measuring at 7.0, a magnitude of 7.0. It struck just after 6pm local time, 96 kilometres southwest of East Sepik province uh, at a depth of about 70 kilometres. However, there are no tsunami warnings at this stage and I can't find any reports of uh, of any widespread damage or anything like that. Um, However, it's believed 130,000 people are estimated to have felt it. Wow, that is a lot of people, but good that there is no damage, reports of damage, and particularly no tsunami warnings. Uh, Any advice from authorities? So Crisis 24 has advised to just plan accordingly for aftershocks. Uh, That means, you know, consider vacating any multi-storey buildings that, you know, might might be a little bit sus from a structural standpoint, at least until authorities can confirm um, their their, their integrity. Um, Also seek information around road conditions, particularly if you're driving up, you know, towards mountainous areas and stuff like that. Uh, I can also confirm flights are still operating. 
rating as well. Oh, well, that is good news. But yes, do uh, if you have any concerns or, or want to uh, know exactly what to do if you've felt that earthquake and, and are concerned about aftershocks, do get in touch with your local authorities. Um, they will be able to advise you accordingly. Um, yeah, seven seven point zero. Did you say is, is quite a strong magnitude? Mm. So good to hear that. Right, there isn't any any major damage just quite yet that we're hearing. Um, now let's go to well a very controversial story we've been following for for quite a few years actually here in Pacific Beach, and that's around the issue of deep sea mining. That's mining the very, very, you know, extreme depths, particularly in the Pacific, um, for for minerals that can be used. And there have been concerns, particularly from Pacific leaders, that that mining can can damage the environment. But now the news is that the UN will start taking mining applications for deep sea mining from July in just a few months. Is that right, Kyle? Yeah, that's exactly right. So companies that want to mine the ocean floor uh, will soon be able to apply to the International Seabed Authority to do so. So this is reported by uh, Reuters, um, who after who reported this story after the UN spent two weeks uh, debating standards and conditions to allow this to go ahead. Uh, and it's going to mean elements like uh, cobalt, copper, nickel and, and mag- manganese will be mined off the ocean floor to make uh, key battery materials. Yes, yes, that's what um, a lot of the companies say, that this is these are the minerals needed, particularly for as we move towards more renewable energies. Um, the, the components to a lot of those renewable energies are these, um, these minerals that you mentioned, copper, nickel, manganese, um, but there are concerns. I mean, I mentioned there are some Pacific leaders who have lodged their concerns earlier uh, around this uh, talk of deep sea mining. But what's the reaction been to this latest UN decision? Well, yeah, somewhat not surprisingly, um, environmental groups aren't happy about it. Uh, Greenpeace called it deeply irresponsible and a wasted opportunity to send a clear message that the destruction of the ocean floor is well and truly over. Uh, meanwhile, the Metals Co., who are, who are one of the most prominent voices advocating for the practice, uh, says it will actually have less impact uh, on traditional mining for batteries uh, on land. So... Yeah, split, uh, mixed reactions there. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, it's, it is, uh, a, as we said, a very controversial uh, decision uh, by the United Nations. Um, to give you some context, um, you know, Tuvalu did sign on to deep sea mining. The foreign minister then rescinded that. He came on the show. You can find that story, um, I think, at the end of last year was when he came in on the show and rescinded that uh, deal or agreement, that plan to do conduct deep sea mining in their waters. Um, we understand Cook Islands is still open to that um, and also Nauru as well. But there are a growing number of Pacific leaders, as said, Palau and Fiji are among the nations to have called on a global moratorium on deep sea mining. It is very contentious um, and a lot of opposing sides to this deep sea mining. And now that it looks, you know, planned to go ahead, we'd love to hear from from you listeners about what you think about deep sea mining. Would you like it to happen in, in sort of the waters around your country? Do get in touch at ABC Pacific is who we are. We'd love to hear your thoughts on on yeah what's shaping up to be a very important and and quite a, could have a, quite a long lasting effect on on the Pacific um, in the future, good or bad. Who knows?
well, do let us know what you think. Get in touch. Um, now to some sporting news, Kyle. The latest round of the World Lug- Rugby 7 Series took place in Hong Kong over the weekend. How did it go? And most importantly, how did the Pacific teams sh- shape up? Well, from a Fiji standpoint, uh, the Fiji men, let's say they did very well, all things considered. They uh, they finished with the silver after losing to New Zealand uh, 24-17 in the final. Um, probably was a little bit disappointing for them, considering they went undefeated all the way through. Uh, they recorded wins over Samoa, who we'll get to in just a second, uh, Canada, South Africa, uh, and even Argentina, who will currently play second. Um, so they, they did really well and, and obviously really pushed New Zealand in that final. Um, still, though, the silver medal finish. It elevates them to third on the ladder, so I imagine a lot of people in Fiji will be breathing much more easier, given they've had a little bit of a, a questionable season form-wise. Mm. Uh, the Samoan men, they did okay. They, they finished with uh, three wins and uh, and three losses. Uh, meanwhile, the Fiji women recorded wins over Ireland and Brazil, but suffered some heavy losses at the hands of uh, Australia, New Zealand, and, uh, and lost to Great Britain in their last match, I believe, as well. Uh, meanwhile, the New Zealand women uh, took the gold. So New Zealand golden gold in both the men and women. Okay, interesting stuff, but still some good news, I guess, mixed up in there for our Pacific teams. And I understand it was also a good weekend for Fiji in Super Rugby. Why is that? Yeah, so both the uh, the Fiji and Drua men and women recorded wins. Uh, the men beat the Rebels 38-28, to 28, while the women beat the Women's Rebels 39-12 um, yep. to 12 in the Curtain Razor. Uh, oh, me- that's massive, 39-12. to 12. Yeah, huge win. So uh, that's right. So the women still undefeated uh, in, the, in the Super W. I think they're currently sitting third on the ladder probably one of only about three or four undefeated teams, I believe. Um, meanwhile, the New Zealand-based Moana Pacifica, another relatively tough day at the office for them. They lost 45-17 to the Highlanders, but progress on last week. Okay, yes, after last week's pretty um, yes disappointing game. Let's hope they can slowly turn it around um, Moana Pacifica and, and uh, get, get some good matches under their belt. Uh, Kyle, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Pranka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. And Kyle, I know you're a video games fan. You mm-hmm. are, right? I do love my video games, yeah. Um, have you heard of this new one called Chia? We were talking about it in the office on Friday. I hadn't yes. heard of it before then, but I, I did some YouTubing over the weekend. It looks fantastic. Yes, and it's been going crazy around the world. Um, for, to give you uh, an example, PC Mag, which is a pretty popular um, magazine about all things video games and PC, gave it 90%. That's how good it is, mm-hmm. comparing it to Zelda. Um, so, yes, as you said, it's a, it's a game based around New Caledonia. It uses a lot of languages, the music of New Caledonia, the culture of New Caledonia to tell this sort of expansive game. I played a bit of it over the weekend. And coming up in the show, in about 10 minutes or so, we'll be speaking to one of the developers behind the game all about it. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. I am looking for a new game to play at the moment. So could this be might it? Be it. Hey, you're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday morning. As the global coffee industry faces increasing scrutiny for pay transparency, one business in Fiji is attempting to uplift the lives of 5,000 coffee harvesters. Lucy Cooper filed this story from Fiji. When Luke Fryatt visited some friends in the highlands of Fiji, he watched as the local village children sucked on and spit out the pips of cherries growing on trees all around the community. It turned out to be wild-grown coffee. Couldn't believe that there was so much coffee around and nothing was being done with it. It was just falling on the ground and going rotten. The fateful day over a decade ago has led New Zealand-born Fryer to establish one of the country's first agri-tourism ventures. In 2011, Mr Fryer had begun his coffee company, 
Buller Coffee. So we started in officially in 2011 and we were harvesting about 20 kgs of cherries from one family that we, nobody would believe us that we would buy coffee and that we would pay them for it. So we just started with one family and slowly grew it from there. We're now buying off about 5,000 people annually and we're doing about 60 tonnes of cherries now. The coffee industry in Fiji relies on the efforts of those living in rural villages to harvest wild coffee. But this has left room for exploitation. Mr Fryatt and his team are hoping to change that by working off three key pillars, people, planet and profits. When we very first set up the company, we worked off um, three Ps, we called it. So that's people, planet and profits. And if any one of them grows without the other two growing with it, then we consider that the business isn't succeeding because we could be turning over huge profits and destroying the planet and not looking after the people that we set out to help, then what's the point? And if we're benefiting lots of the villagers and they're getting good income and we're not making profits, then we're not sustainable, so what's the point? So we work on the three Ps, and as long as they're all growing together, then we consider that the business is succeeding. Mr Fryatt has introduced firm transparency systems to ensure all 5,000 of his harvesters are paid fairly. When we deal with all the villagers, when we buy coffees, we always give them receipts and we have triplicate or duplicate of those receipts so and we always say to them if we've done something wrong if we haven't paid you properly come back and talk to us we're happy to fix it up we're dealing with that many people we're going to make mistakes when we do payments into bank accounts and over the last kind of 10 11 years we've worked really hard to have those relationships with the people that are picking the coffee we know a lot of them by name we know their families we know where they are in the village and when there's cyclones or anything that hit We're always there to go and talk to them and figure out what they need and set up supplies for them or whatever. Diana Tou Domalailai works for Luke at Buller Coffee and has just been promoted to customer service manager. She joined the business in a commitment to change local females' lives. I didn't really know much about Buller Coffee until I started working for Buller Coffee and I heard these stories and how amazing it is that it was helping our community, all the women up in the interior. And yeah, so ever since then, I'm so proud and never regretted joining Bula Coffee. It means that uh, women can be independent. Like um, in Fiji, it's a um, tradition where men are the breadwinners of a family. And to know that this company supports women to be financially independent, yeah, it's lovely. As coffee production has expanded, so has the story behind Bula Coffee. And it's one owner Luke Fryatt wants to spread. Opening a cafe and coffee shop on site without even intending to, Mr Fryatt is now successfully running one of Fiji's first agritourism ventures. Coffee is actually the first company that uh, started its uh, agritourism venture. So uh, it's one of the first and hopefully not the last. Um, yeah, so this is a new thing for Fiji and not really a lot of people know that we could actually take tourists around farms. And I am really proud to actually tell the stories uh, on how Block Coffee started, like I said, and to know about the local beans or the local coffee products that Bullock Coffee sells and the story. Whilst Diana was showing me around the coffee plantation and coffee shop, two Californian tourists, Vincent and Vanilla, walked in. We were just doing uh, research, you know, Google research, like is there any local coffee here in Fiji because we stayed in Denarau and other area, like all the coffees are all like not local. So it's like, is there any local coffee? 
<laughs> Here we are. The culture, like locally grown things, and yeah, like things helping the economy of the local people. That's kind of what we're into. <laughs> and without forgetting our home, Australian researchers from the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, also known as ACR, have an important role in the future of coffee in Fiji. The ACIR gang have come and they've taken, I think, about 40 samples from the wild coffee plantations around Fiji and we're now working with them to, to establish which is the best one to grow. We're looking for um, a high yield but also one that will last essentially fruit throughout the whole season or maybe we'll have a few, one that fruits early, one that fruits halfway through the season and one that's a late, a late fruit so that people can get a longer income off it. Coffee borer is a problem in Fiji and sometimes you get a bit of rust as well so we're looking at getting in some um, through the universities from Australia, some that are resistant to those problems to help improve the industry as a whole. That was Luca Fryat ending that report from Lucy Cooper. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Chia is a new video game set in a fictional Pacific nation inspired, though, by New Caledonia. And it's getting rave reviews around the world. The game follows the story of a young girl who goes on an epic journey to free her father from an evil overlord. And... As you can hear, the video's music, or the video games, I should say, music, location, its culture, the language that it's used, its interpretation of magic, were all inspired by New Caledonia's Kanak culture. And to learn more, I'm joined this morning by the game's co-founder, Phil Krufo. Phil, welcome to Pacific Beat. Yeah, hello, thanks so much for having me. Um, now, I got the chance, You, your team were generous enough to send me some game codes to actually play the game over the weekend. I was able to play a bit of it. And one of the first things that struck me is that at the very beginning, before you even start moving people around and, and getting into the game, you actually acknowledge New Caledonia and the inspiration behind the game. Why was it important for you to put New Caledonia and, and the people behind it um, front and center in this way? Um, I, I think we, we wanted like from, from the very start of the project, we wanted to honor the culture with our representation of it. It's, it's a culture that hasn't been shown a lot in any media and in video games, even less. I think it's, the, it's, it's very much the first time. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to portray it in a way that, that, you know, was, um, positive and, and 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 glorifying and 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 it was important that it wasn't just like an aesthetic that we slapped onto a, a game and onto some mechanics but we we wanted to acknowledge that okay this game is built around a real thing and and we thought that enhanced the the experience for the player to know that upfront when they jumped in Mm. Yeah, because the level of detail is phenomenal. I mean, from it seems like the um, the buildings that you see is, is very much traditional Kanak, it seems, inspired at least um, by, um, you know, those sort of thatched housing. The the language, I believe, is also from Drehu, which is a New Caledonian um, language. Um, the food that's yeah. eaten during the game. I mean, what, what went into actually trying to find those elements? Did you do much research to try and make sure that it was accurate? Um, sure. Yeah. Well, the the idea from the start was to portray uh, New Caledonia as it is 
um, today. Well, to kind of get inspired by New Caledonia today in the modern sense, mm. um, it was. I think it would have been an easy trap to fall in to just focus on the the folklore and the legends and the myths and to go like full on into like fantasy territory. But we really wanted to, you know, show off New Caledonia how we knew it, how we learn to love it growing up um so that includes of course a lot of the traditional stuff the the kanak culture but also uh modernity like there's a city and there's different villages a lot of um different cultural backgrounds and languages um so we really wanted to have that whole panel of you know influences that kind of make new caledonian culture super rich and and interesting mm, because you're from new caledonia is is yeah. that right phil how how did you, can you tell me a bit about the game's origin origin story how long did it take how did you get this idea how did it all happen yeah um uh, yeah i'm i'm i was born and raised in new caledonia and i left for uh, europe when i was 19 uh to study uh, 3D animation and cinema. And I realized um, then that I was really passionate about making video games, but I, I had no programming skills. So I was kind of uh, hitting the ceiling of, of my skills with 3D animation. Um, so I, I teamed up with a childhood friend from New Caledonia as well called Thierry Bois. And he joined me and we, we got into the, the indie game development adventure together and did a very small game in 2016, and then we we wanted to do something bigger and, and more um, more ambitious for our next game, and that would become Chia. and And we sat down and we thought, okay, what, where do we stand on the on the the landscape of of independent video games? What's our voice? What do we have to say to the world that would be fresh and original and new and worth telling? And our our background, our our cultural heritage, and the fact that we grew up on a, on a remote island with a very rich culture felt like such an, an, a, a vast and, and rich, um, you know, background to to look into to build uh, worlds and tell stories. That we decided, okay, let's let's dive into that heritage of ours and build something out of it. And from there, we had to learn a bit because even though we grew up there. Uh, we're not Kanak, so there's a lot of stuff. Even though the, the culture is very much ingrained into modern New Caledonian culture, there, there are very like specific aspects that we had to really dive into it and learn about. And, and we were able to work with local people who are very, very um, attached to the project and were able to do cultural consulting with us to make sure that we portrayed you know, all those cultures in a, a respectful and accurate light as well. Mm, because I imagine it would have been hard to find even people who who spoke and, and sang in the language. Um, yes. Drehu, was that difficult finding the right people to to advise you accurately? Yeah, very much. I mean, there is basically no like acting scene mm. um, in, in in New Caledonia. There is a very vivid uh, musical scene, though. So what we did is kind of a mix of wild casting, where you know a friend knew a cousin of a friend of a sister who maybe did theater once. And so we went knocking on doors and, you know, figuring out if people were willing to read a few lines. And that's basically how all the casting worked. Like basically no uh, voice actors in the game are professional voice actors. It's, it's all people that, you know, were kind of felt right for the project and we were, we were able to drive um, and to get, you know, that the essence of, of, their their specific backgrounds uh, from them and then 
for the music, we're able to work with very talented local singers and choirs and musicians who also sometimes lended their voices to characters and vice versa. So it was kind of a, a mix of, you know, professionals for the music and, and, and just people with, with great personalities and voices for the voice actors. And then we tried to have some of them sing and, and some of them uh, act. And it was a very like human, organic uh, adventure, the, the, the whole voice acting cast process. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I mean, is there anything that sticks out for you, Phil, um, that is most special to you, particularly hearing from you about how much went into it? Is there anything yeah. from the game, gameplay that, that you um, find most special? Um, do, do you do you ask about the game itself or the process of making it? Well, whichever, whichever that sticks out for you. Um, well, I think um, it was, like I mentioned, it was a very human adventure, the whole thing. So what what comes to mind is um mostly the the those human moments uh we brought so we we built a team in europe around the, the core uh new caledonian folks uh then we we grew like with people from france and towards the end of development we took our whole team to new caledonia and some of them had never never seen the place we just were able to communicate our our, our love for the culture but they had never seen it firsthand. So it was super important for us that they got to, you know, go there and, and visit the landmarks that we recreated in the game and met the local talent that had worked on the game from New Caledonia and, and to, you know, mix those development focused people with, you know, the local folks who have uh, brought so much, you know, soul into the game as well. So it was a very emotional trip and it kind of, you know, closed the circle on a project that was a bit crazy to to begin with but i think the moment where the development team was able to you know meet with the voice actors and and the choirs and the singers uh, in actually in new caledonia on on the land was very very special Yes, and I, 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 considering that you've put so much work into not just the game itself, but also all this behind-the-scene um, consultation, taking people to New Caledonia, to find out yeah. now that it has gone crazy uh, in the video game world. I mean, to give you an example, PC Magazine gave it 90%. It's being called one of the best open-world games um, of late. Um, it's being compared to some classic video games like Zelda. Zelda. Did you expect yeah. such praise? How how does it feel being through this journey? No, I, I can't say we were expecting uh, such a positive feedback. To be honest, we're we're a very small team. We're we're ten people now, uh, and the game started way more humble than than it has became. Like the scope grew quite a lot during development, so we didn't realize really what we were making. To be honest, we were making. A game that we thought was great, but the response has been very overwhelming, and and yeah, it's 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 a bit surreal still for the team. But I think, I think most of all, what's what's very moving is the response from um, New Caledonia locals and the way they are sending us messages to thank us, and 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 they're telling us that they feel represented sometime for the first time in 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 the media, and that you know that's always very very special. Yes, indeed. Well, Phil, congratulations um, on producing such an amazing game and getting New Caledonia and um, Pacific uh, culture out there. Hopefully we'll see more video games in that same light. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much.
That was Phil Krufo, creator of this new video game, Chia. Do check it out. Like, I've been, as I said, quite struck at how phenomenally accurate and also um, what care has been put into the graphics and, and the gameplay of, of Chia. And with that, it brings us to the end of Pacific Beach. If you want to get in touch to chat about any of these stories, perhaps you have a video game in mind, do reach us at ABC Pacific. News is next. Hope you have a lovely day.